This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by the Socialism 2019 Conference, which is taking place this July 4th through 7th in Chicago. Socialism 2019 is the largest socialist conference in North America. Join hundreds of other activists, organizers, and socialists fighting for the Green New Deal and Medicare for All, and organizing their workplaces and social movements. Participate in panels and discussions on black feminism, radical film, reparations, Palestinian liberation, and the socialist case for open borders. Speakers at Socialism 2019 include Naomi Klein, David Harvey, Astra Taylor, Amy Goodman, Anand Gopal, Francis Fox Piven, me, Dan Denver, and many more. Teacher strike leaders from the past year will come together at the conference with other teachers and union organizers to share experiences, inspire, and strategize. Socialism 2019 Conference is organized by Haymarket Books and Jacobin and is endorsed by the Democratic Socialists of America. Visit socialismconference.org to register today. That's socialismconference.org. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The media has defined Representative Rashida Tlaib as someone who called Trump a motherfucker and as a Palestinian-American Muslim woman who stands up for Palestinian liberation. She is, of course, all of those things. But she is also an environmental justice activist from the grassroots, a working-class warrior and DSA member born and raised in Detroit, whose people she now represents in Congress. Today's interview is a short interview, at least by dig standards, with Representative Tlaib, discussing the local struggles that guide her work on behalf of the working class in Congress, the urgent need for a politics that puts people over profit, the question of impeachment, and also why Americans are coming around to supporting a free Palestine. Before we get things rolling, I'd like to ask you to hand over a modest amount of your money at patreon.com slash the dig. I get a lot of nice notes from listeners thanking me for spending so much time preparing for my interviews. And I do indeed spend a lot of time on this, way more than 40 hours a week. And the only reason I can afford to do that and afford to pay good money to my producer and to a bunch of other people who help out and afford to post every episode with no paywall, is because those of you who can afford to contribute do so at patreon.com slash the dig. Plus, we've got goodies. Contributors of $10 get a left-wing book sent to them in the mail, and contributors of $20 or more get many books sent to them. So if you haven't contributed yet, please do so now. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Also, a heads up on what's coming down the line. I have five episodes on European politics. Yes, five coming out over the next two weeks. 
And then I have an episode with Tony Wood on Russia, and then another with Nick Estes on indigenous resistance, and then a lot more high-quality left-wing content after that. Okay, thank you. And here's Representative Rashida Tlaib, who represents Michigan's 13th District. Representative Rashida Tlaib, welcome to The Dig. Thank you so much for having me. One of the first times I met you when I was visiting Detroit in 2012, you were on your cell phone with ICE trying to stop a deportation of a local man, maybe a constituent, I don't recall. And I overheard the the call because you're standing right next to me and you said, quote, I thought the Obama administration was not deporting people like him. You were a Palestinian American state rep representing the heart of this very diverse and heavily Latino neighborhood of southwest Detroit, Mexican town, which is just next door to Dearborn, the capital of Arab and Muslim America. Tell me about coming up in this area as an organizer and a politician in a city that's both this like icon of deindustrialization and segregation, but also this remarkably diverse patchwork that represents precisely the vision of America that President Trump demonizes so constantly. Yeah, so, you know, when people think about the city of Detroit, I mean, they need to know it's a predominantly African-American city where the neighborhood I grew up in was 20 different ethnicities, a very diverse, strong community. And yeah, it is also home to one of the larger concentration of Latinos, but it also has, you know, a large concentration of African-Americans, as well as even, you know, when I look at some of the older kind of neighborhoods like Delray and others where there's a strong roots of, you know, old Hungarian Polish immigrants that came to the United States uh, in the 30s and 40s. So it is one of those most incredible cities and neighborhoods that it's almost like going through a history book. But yeah, I very much uh, became very strong in a lot of uh, issues that I'm very passionate about primarily because my neighbors were experiencing it as much as I was. Uh, And again, it made me a better advocate uh, to be in such a diverse community. One of the things that I I do notice more and more when I'm away from my neighborhood, away from my city, away from Wayne County, Michigan, is just how odd and and different uh, those other communities look and feel. Uh, And for me, this was a norm, uh, the fact that I you know, was exposed to people of different faiths and different backgrounds and different experiences. And again, it made me a better advocate. I mean, I have a really broad understanding of the struggle uh, between, you know, different kinds of working class members of our, uh, throughout the United States because of my experiences growing up in such a diverse and strong neighborhood. And, you know, every corner uh, in city of Detroit is a reminder of the civil rights movement, the labor rights movement, even as I was fighting for immigrant rights, a movement continue to do so. There's also now now much stronger reminders of the struggle with the broken immigration system and how that's hurt many of our Detroit neighbors here and throughout Wayne County. But yeah, a lot of it uh, is so much of an extension of being that organizer and being that person that grew up uh, in Southwest Detroit. How did you first get involved in working class struggles in Southwest Detroit? So my dad only went up to fourth grade education, my mom, eighth grade education, and uh, both were born in Palestine. My mom grew up in the West Bank in the occupied territories. My 
dad, um, probably when he was nine or 10 years old, uh, moved to Nicaragua and found, found more poverty and decay and a lot of other struggles. And when he came to the United States at the age of 19, he really didn't feel or experience economic stability until he finally got a job at Ford Motor Company and, you know, got health insurance for the first time, got involved in the United Auto Workers. Uh, I remember, you know, he was so proud to always consistently vote. It was the first time he ever voted in his life was when he was in the United States after becoming a citizen. So much of that is so tied into in that kind of story. I don't care if you find an African-American, Latino, white family in Detroit, they will probably, that story resonates so much with them as well, because much of their families and those that struggled had similar challenges, not only being, you know, uh, immigrants, but also being working class or struggling with poverty. It seems like Southwest Detroit is a place where, as an organizer, it becomes very hard to separate issues like racial justice, immigrant rights, and workers' rights. Yeah, I mean, when you think about all of those issues, it's all tied to economic justice. When you look at even the struggle now in the city of Detroit, where there's, you know, those those are for development, and then there's our for the neighborhood. I mean, in the 7.2 miles that you see being developed in Detroit now, they're calling it and labeling it the comeback. More of our neighborhoods are struggling. Poverty is actually increased, not decreased with this kind of development because we are choosing winners and losers. But what I love about my city is I don't care if it's the mothers down the block to the African-American leaders uh, in various like church communities are speaking up and saying, you know, we, we need to be able to have a seat at the table. We need a community benefits process. And I feel like more and more we're becoming a birthplace talking about that, talking about if you're going to get in the corporate tax welfare line, that you need to make sure that there's a legally binding contract that, you know, trickles down to the neighborhood beyond jobs, but actually trying to help our education system, our public health environment, and all the things that I think are critically important uh, for communities, especially communities of color. And this isn't just a, a city with intense poverty and disinvestment. It also has an extremely wealthy ruling class. There's Dan Gilbert, the head of of Quicken, who's kind of managing the gentrification of downtown Detroit. And I know you have a long history with Maddie Maroon, the owner of the Ambassador Bridge, the main the bridge between Detroit and Canada and Windsor that that cuts through your your district. How tell me a little about some of these these fights that have taken place over the years and how how they've shaped your politics. I mean, I think, you know, much of the fight that is 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 truly about fairness. When you think about the hundreds of schools that have been directly impacted by the lack of resource and funding, and some have led to actually having to close their doors. I mean, our, our education system uh, is really being neglected over and over again. And so when you think about right after uh, we filed bankruptcy and the number of developers, you know, mega billionaires who, you know, can afford to do development, for-profit development without the subsidy from the, you know, from the state government or city government, and you just recently have even Chrysler involved with Maddie Maroon, as well as other uh, developers, and doing land swaps behind closed doors. All of this, uh, you know, this kind of corporate greed that's been festering is directly hurting working families. They're they're basically pushing people more into poverty by make not making by making sure that we don't have a seat at the table. That they are shifting public dollars, tax dollars directly away from schools, city services, and other things that I think are critically important 
away and in, in, in putting it into for-profit development. And and yet Detroit is often blamed for, for decades, really, as having caused its own problems and not these larger structures of, of inequality and segregation. And Detroit Public Schools and the city have both been laboratories for conservative and corporate experimentation through through state takeovers. I mean, it's sort of been sad because it, it is winners and losers, but it's also this sense of entitlement by the billionaires in, in, in our city. And, and even across Wayne County, I hear it from other communities. This sense of, well, we can't do this kind of development and create jobs if we don't have, you know, this big large trust or if you aren't giving us the land we need, whatever it is. But there is a sense of how much is too much. And then, you know, when you say jobs, well, jobs for who? Because 60% of the people uh, that live in the city of Detroit work outside of the city of Detroit. 70% that work in the city of Detroit do not live in the city of Detroit. And just alone, that statistic should you know, ring bells for city officials and for the mayor and others to understand there's an imbalance here, that we are using our public resources, very rare resources. You know, we're, we haven't even hit the five-year mark uh, post-bankruptcy, and we yet are uh, continually feeding into these large-scale mega, uh, you know, developments that are for-profit. And, and then alone, at the same time, we still haven't fixed our education system. We still have infrastructure issues. I have communities that are still waiting, still waiting to deal with the issue of blight, the fact that we haven't seen an increase in uh, Black home ownership in the city of Detroit uh, like we should. We actually, the numbers are staggering. Like looking at the numbers, somebody told me it's, it's as bad as it was before we passed the Fair Housing Act. I mean, so there's been a shift. And it is those that have and then those that don't have. And, I, and this is public resources, public dollars. When are we going to say it's enough? And, you know, this is why even today I was meeting mothers and families and groups that have been working with a lot of the families in, in the 13th Congressional District, which is the third poorest congressional district in the country. And we talked about the Lift Plus Act that I'm going to be introducing next week. And it's, it's basically earned income tax credit on steroids. It's a broader umbrella of saying, if you look, if you're making $50,000 or less, that and you're a single person, then you should be able to get $3,000 of a big tax break um, that is going to help you with your quality of life, lift you up as a working family. Same with families, it's going to be 6000 And you don't even have to get it in the whole lump sum, but even throughout the year. We do so much for corporations. So, you know, I'm going to push back on those that say, well, we don't have the money. Well, we seem to have the money for the Trump tax bill. And, and, and then we seem to have the money for all these other large scale kind of development that's for profit, not 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 public. They're for profit development. And it's frustrating because every time I pass that hockey stadium, the Little Caesars Arena now, all I see is four hundred million dollars shifted away from our schools and put into uh, a, basically an adult playground. Uh, you know, I always say to people, like, why, why don't they just sell more pizza? Figure it out. Because our public dollars should be used towards these public resources that are critically important and actually been lacking. I can't even get clean water in the majority of my schools in my district. Uh, and it's not just Detroit. All the schools throughout the community has really been suffering by not having access to clean water, not having fair, small class sizes, or even some schools are struggling to even pay their teachers. It's really heartbreaking to see this happen, that we're choosing developers and billionaires over real people, people that actually put us in office. Another piece of legislation that you're working on is one that would bar the use of credit information from being used by auto insurance companies in determining rates. Tell me about the legislation, what the problem is you're trying to address, 
and why it's a priority for people in your district. And it's important to tell the story of the person that really brought this to my attention. And she's a retiree. She worked at Beaumont Hospital in Michigan for over 25 years. When she retired, she you know, started having a limited income. Uh, and as soon as she retired, uh, I guess it impacted her credit score of some sort. And all of a sudden, her uh, insurance rate went up $350. And you should see in her face. She just couldn't understand. She drove less. She still lived in the same place, drove the same vehicle. So it was very much taken aback by why she was being punished. I mean, she worked hard. She did what she was supposed to be doing. And now they were pushing back and saying, nope, we're going to charge you more. Uh, and it's, it's a form of discrimination because more and more of my residents uh, becoming newly widowed or something happens to their income or so forth are paying a large amount. And I, and I, I saw a study from the University of Michigan that showed DUIs. Uh, somebody with a DUI with good credit was paying far less than somebody with good driving record with no DUI and a decent, okay uh, credit score. How come that is the case? I mean, that alone is discriminatory in its, in its practice. And, you know, more and more, I kept reading about some of the rationale by the insurance agencies of why they were doing this. And it all resulted in that they thought, well, if somebody has a low credit score, the likelihood of them committing a fraudulent or submitting fraudulent claims was higher. Uh, and no, nothing, there's no proof of that, but they basically were punishing people for being poor. Uh, they were, they were. Just, and just forcing them to pay more because they're poor, which is corporate America just plundering absolutely. poor people. It's just a, a, another example of how expensive it is to be poor. Exactly. And it, it is, it is almost a tax on a tax. I mean, it just doesn't stop. And, and the audacity of them, you know, they, they know that ta- the credit score, if you unpackage it, you realize it's, it's flawed. Like, if you look at some of the things that are being calculated into your credit score, it's just really unfair. But really, if it doesn't have anything to do with your driving record, maybe the cost of your car. I mean, all these other things that I think are more relevant and important than, you know, whatever the, the, the information that they're trying to dissect from, from a credit score. It is ridiculous that they punish people based on that. It has nothing to do with somebody's driving history or driving record. And that's why it was very important for me to introduce that bill that said, look, for all the three credit credit consumer reporting agencies, all three of them should be prohibited and submitting our credit scores to car insurance industry. And I think it should go farther. I think it should, you know, I've been talking to folks about home insurance and other things. We are seeing over and over again, people using other ways to get around race and other, they are now using things that are based on income to discriminate against people. And that alone, if you look at the statistics, it's overwhelmingly communities of color that are always getting hurt by this. You also have a bill that directly addresses the issue of environmental justice, both nationwide and very much in your district. It would direct the federal government to study the health effects of something called pet coke, which is a byproduct of oil refining. You you have fought against the open storage of pet coke in Detroit for a long time. And as a state rep, if I understand this right, you even trespassed. Allegedly, allegedly trespassed. You allegedly (laughs) trespassed to get a sample of the material. Explain this legislation, your history on the issue and on environmental justice more generally and why environmental justice is so critical in southwest Detroit and really in Detroit as a whole. Absolutely. You know, look, I grew up in a community where I thought that smell was normal. You know, one of five children have asthma. Uh, The fact that... uh, 
you know, so many people have respiratory issues, the, uh, beyond even the odor, we're re realizing just the, the public health toll of housing such large scale industry. You know, I had no idea what these large black piles were on the Detroit Riverfront. Somebody in Windsor called and asked me, you know, what's going on over there? And when I had heard Marathon Oil Refinery had expanded in 2008 uh, to bring tar sands in from Canada, one of their largest uh, in the nations uh, in, in our country, the largest expansion that an oil refinery had had, a petroleum refinery, is that they built this coker. So they basically was taking the crude oil, the tar sands, and, and producing petroleum coke, meta-coke. They can call it coke milkshake. The point is it's carcinogenic toxins. And they got onto Maddie Maroon's property. Maddie Maroon still to this day claims he didn't know anything about it, uh, which I don't believe. And without any permit, without any fugitive dust plan, without any even discussions about the uh, water runoff issue uh, regarding these piles, just dumped it on the riverfront, 40 feet a ton, you know, height. And folks can look it up. I mean, it was a black dust just going every blowing everywhere. And Michigan Department of Environmental Quality, and this is before Flint, told me it's not toxic. I was just taken aback by that. And I was so upset. And it was a woman who worked at the Ecology Center who lived in my district, Catherine Savoy. I remember telling her, I'm going to go have a press conference about this. Please come. And she goes, boy, Rashida, I wish we could test it ourselves. And we could, we could release the uh, test results our, ourselves instead of relying on government to protect us. Let's do it ourselves. And I said to her, well, if I got samples, will you be able to test them uh, and independently? And so sure enough, the I passed some tracks, jumped over some piles and got through, was able to put petroleum <laughs> coke in some three, you know, like these sandwich, Ziploc sandwich bags and got it to the ecology center. And I want you to know, you know, I was going to mail it out to Ann Arbor. So I didn't have time. I was going to mail it out. The U.S. Postal Office said that's one of the things they listed as they can't mail because it could combust at any moment. But you can put 40 feet ton of height of petroleum coke behind where people live on the riverfront but I couldn't even mail it. So we released the uh, results. I uh, released it. And after that, Michigan Department of Environmental Quality came back and said, okay, it's toxic if it's not contained. Uh, and that led at least some movement on the city level and others to push back and say they have to remove it from the riverfront. Uh, and I got to tell you, I mean, we had homes tested. They found it on their window seal. One woman, when we had her, uh, them in her apartment, uh, it was on and actually on her, one of her dish uh, sponges that she uses to wash her dishes. Um, oh. So th it was blowing everywhere. And, and Marathon continued even this past, this current year. Marathon asked for variance and not having to contain it, saying that they can't afford it <laughs> uh, and that, that it, it outweighed, you know, the cost or so forth. And I'm really proud that the city of Detroit decided to deny them on their waiver to cover up the petroleum coke or contain it in some sort of storage unit. Uh, and look, you know, more uh, city, you know, Chicago's doing it, others are doing it. But I think, you know, I want to one day see us push back and say enough, enough with, you know, dirty energy, uh, enough in jeopardizing our public health. And I say, you know, no more air permits unless the public health departments okay it until they can say that it's not going to hurt people, that it's not going to cause, you know, uh, respiratory issues, asthma, cancer. And so many of my people in Delray, uh, even with this new bridge coming in, I mean, are dying off left and right of cancer, all kinds of forms of cancer. And some of them have never had it in their families before. And so it is really important that we start choosing people over profits 
start pushing back against development. Development needs to be for everyone. Uh, it can't just be for billionaires. You just said that this pet coke came from the Canadian tar sands to Detroit, and it seems like a really good example of how environmental harm and environmental struggles are, are connected all over the place, from the site where the oil is being extracted to places like Standing Rock, where they're pushing in the pipelines, to working-class neighborhoods like yours that are treated like a garbage dump to, to everyone in the whole planet who is now dealing with the threat of climate change. Yeah, these oil you know, moguls, or whatever you want to call them, these mega-billionaires and these corporations, I mean, we are just their dumping ground. Um, you know, my, I had one point was so angry with the governor and not doing anything about it. I was going to buy a bunch of petroleum coke and dump it at the at the mansion and, and Lansing because I, I just wanted to, to show people like that's how crazy it is. You just did it. Yeah, you did it in a low moderate income neighborhood. But what if I did it to you? What if what if I came? That that's the same thing. If I came and dumped it in front of your home, you know what would your reaction be? And I wish people would see it the sense of urgency that I have when it happens to my district, when, when people are literally left behind or ignored or neglected or disrespected, it's so dehumanizing to just allow this continuation of choosing, uh, you know, these, these billionaires from Dan Gilbert to Mike Illich to, you know, to the Illich family, to all these other folks. And now I have developers come from all over the world to come here and they're not only disrespecting the history and the legacy that, you know, Detroit continues to create in these amazing social justice movements, but they're also getting the blessings from our, my local and state government officials. Uh, and just to sit back and watch this continue to happen, you know, it's, it's dehumanizing. You famously and in, in colorfully made, made headlines earlier this year when you said that Congress should impeach Trump. And unsurprisingly, you got quite a bit of blowback from obviously the right and also the typical establishment civility scolds. But but on the left, there's a, there's a debate over impeachment because on the one hand, the president is a criminal and we've already let too many criminal presidents act with impunity in the past. But, but on the other, the Senate will never vote to convict, it doesn't seem. And there's concern on the left that impeachment could distract from the sort of bread and butter class conflict issues that have led to a left resurgence since Bernie's 2016 campaign. What's your take? Well, I, you know, I want to push back on this whole idea where the Senate won't convict. I mean, the Watergate class, which is, you know, we're, we're the largest water, we're the largest incoming congressional class since Watergate, the Watergate class. They didn't set the standard as, oh, well, we need 67 votes before we proceed. They chose to choose country and duty and responsibility to uphold the United States Constitution, but also to push back against obstruction of justice and President Nixon's continued ignoring, you know, congressional subpoenas and so forth. And I'm glad, I'm glad that they didn't choose that standard to proceed to hold the president accountable at that time, because Nixon would have been able to get away with it. This is 10 times worse. This is probably the largest cover-up that our country has ever seen historically. And it continues to get worse in that we are passing legislation, bipartisan one, including exercising our war powers for the first time ever in history and saying, look, we're not going to participate in the humanitarian crisis and just the tragedy that's happening in Yemen, in the Yemen war. We're not going to help Saudi Arabian government. Republicans, Democrats got out of the Senate. We voted for it, all of us. And what does he do in the last few days? He decides to ignore it and to, to, to exercise executive power or some sort of privilege. And, and he went and sold arms to Saudi Arabia to help in the Yemen, Yemeni war. That is just one example. It's over and over again, you see him 
completely ignoring uh, the fact that this is a co-equal branch of government. You know, he's, he's normalizing this. He's, he's, it's almost like setting a precedent, a dangerous precedent towards our democracy. And yes, it's not perfect, but we're allowing a, you know, crooked CEO to run the, you know, this country. He's running his businesses out of the Oval Office. There is sensitive information that really jeopardizes our security, but more importantly, it jeopardizes the work we've been doing all around the spectrum, around drug companies, around just even having campaign finance uh, laws, all of these things. And we can't do our job if we have administration, the cabinet members, others, they're just continuing to cover up. They won't even give us the name. We bipartisan support of a subpoena to say, give us the names of the children being caged up at the border. They continue to refuse to give us that information. How are we as members of Congress, which we are the oversight, this is our responsibility. We're supposed to hold him accountable and we can't do our job if he acts king-like. I mean, he's, he, it's completely lawless and we can't hold him accountable unless we do an impeachment inquiry. And more and more of my colleagues are now seeing that. They're seeing how it impacts everything that we're trying to do. And if I hear one more time, we need to wait for 2020. These are people that are really not understanding that us not doing anything right now isn't an option. The fact that he is now currently president and the fact that he could possibly continue to be president and get reelected. But that is not putting our country first. You can't sit there and start thinking about the election. No, he is currently the president, the most powerful position in the country and the world. Uh, and he is it's corruption after corruption, cover up after cover up. And when are we going to say it's our responsibility, our duty to do right by the people, the American people, and push back on him violating our Constitution, violating these principles? Because if we don't, we're normalizing it. Because this will not be our last crooked CEO that wants to run for president. It's such a dangerous president that somebody along the line will think they can do the same thing. And we saw that. President Truman went to war without going through Congress. Every single president has gone to war without going through Congress since then. And so... It is important for us. And a woman who oversaw torture is now the head of the CIA. It's all of these decisions. And do you know, even from HUD, uh, wanting to, you know, allowing facial recognition, uh, from, you know, the ICE not being able to actually be audited. I mean, we need to have ICE audited. It just is endless. And all of that is so interconnected with the fact that he is acting very king-like uh, above the law. Uh, and that's one thing, I don't care if you're Republican, Democrat, or Libertarian, or Green Party, or whatever your background is, that's one thing American people do not like is, you know, pay to play, corruption, or somebody that thinks they're above the law. My last question, and then I'll, I'll let you go, and I didn't want to focus the interview on this, but on, on the politics of, of Palestine solidarity, you, you and Representative Omar have been the subject of a horrific torrent of abuse because you both support Palestinian liberation and because you are both Muslim women. And I'm sure this has been incredibly painful and difficult personally, but but I also think that it's quite hopeful politically. Would you agree that, that defenders of the status quo are rightfully worried that the American people, particularly young people, are moving towards supporting justice and freedom in Israel and Palestine? Yeah, I, I am you know, seeing more and more people choosing values and choosing this kind of sense around justice and equality. You know, but for me, I can't separate the fact that I grew up in the most beautiful blackest city in the country and that every corner is a reminder of the civil rights movement. But my, you know, African-American teachers, others, 
they used to show me neighborhoods and communities where it was segregated. That if you were a biracial couple, you couldn't live in. You couldn't work in certain places. You couldn't eat in certain places. Even Congressman uh, woman Barbara Lee was telling me about how her father used to wear his uniform in hopes that, you know, maybe he might get served at a certain restaurant, right? I can tell you, you know, I was in Palestine with my mother and, and she had to get in separate lines. There are different colored license plates if you're Palestinian versus Israeli, that there are, you know, discontinued dehumanization policies or racist policies by the state of Israel that basically violates uh, international human rights, but also violates my core values of who I am as an American. Separate but equal doesn't work. I know that my ancestors, you know, were killed, died, uh, you know, uprooted from their land. That's something that no one even wants to acknowledge uh, had to happen to create uh, the state of Israel. Uh, do I want to do that again to other? Absolutely not. But I want there to be a recognition that it happened. And then from there on, you know, do some sort of healing process to understanding that that needs to then lead to some sort of equality and freedom for my grandmother who still lived there. You know, she should be able to die with some sort of human dignity. And I know that that will lead us to true peace because everything else is not working. And this is, you know, over 70 years of struggle. And uh, it's because we're not looking at it in the same way we should be, just like we looked at the, you know, continue to look at the struggle for Black Americans for true equality and true access to opportunities to thrive. The same thing that is happening to our LGBTQ community. All of that to me is so interconnected to when I say free Palestine, that Palestinians deserve human rights. It's so interconnected, the same values. And I see our young people understanding that. So when I see Black Lives Matter, young person saying, you know, with the teacher says free Palestine and I'm wearing the Black Lives Matter teacher, I know that we're, it's working, that we are now understanding. That's real solidarity. Yes. And that we're not a country that's divided. We're just disconnected. Uh, and I think <laughs> as Americans, we truly appreciate these, these true values. And it's, it's things that give us hope. And so for many of us, and I see more and more Americans understanding the, the plight of Palestinians but in a way that doesn't dehumanize Israelis and doesn't degrade them. But it does hold the leadership of the Israeli government accountable that, yeah, you're proceeding in a way that, to me, uh, is a direct violation of someone's core right to human dignity. Well, Rashida Tlaib, thank you so very much. Thank you so much. Take care, Dean. Representative Rashida Tlaib represents Michigan's 13th District. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that all forms of the state have democracy for their truth, and for that reason are false to the extent that they are not democracy. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. This week we're posting about four, which is abnormal. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Julia Rock. Our managing editor is Fia Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does you telling friends, family, strangers about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig. 
and make a monthly contribution to help keep this thing up and running strong. Mm -hmm.